Good morning. Good morning. My name is Melissa. My name is Thomas. Thomas is going to help me read the scripture this morning. I don't think anyone is excited to read scripture this morning as Thomas is. He's very excited. And he's going to read it. Okay. You ready? Let's turn together to Psalm 62. For God alone, my soul awaits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock. And my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Good morning, church. Thank you, Melissa and Thomas. did a great job. Uh, Well, for those of you I haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Reese. I'm the newest pastor here on staff at Sound City, and I really would like to meet you. Uh, If we haven't had a chance to shake hands right after the service, I'll be hanging out down here, and I'd love to get that opportunity just to hear your name and uh, begin to learn a little bit about each other's stories. So let me say a quick prayer, and then we're going to jump into Psalm 62 together. Lord, I thank you for each person here this morning. God, I thank you for those who are coming into this place full of joy and thanksgiving, uh, with a sense of what you are doing in their life. But Lord, I thank you equally for those that maybe feel distant from you, uh, who come into this place heavy, uh, burdened. Lord, I thank you for those that come into this place and they aren't even sure what they think about you. Uh, They don't know... um, If they believe in you at all, we thank you for every single person and how you want to meet us here today. And we do invite that, Lord. We invite your spirit to come and meet each person uh, where they are. We know that that is your heart, um, that you have a love for us and you have the power uh, to bring about the things in our lives that you want to bring about. We ask all this in Christ's name. It's in uh, his glorious name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, um, my uh, parents and my sister are actually here with us this morning, all the way from Texas. They're right there. You can welcome them. And uh, in middle school, they signed me up for a sailing camp one summer. And we don't really have a lot of sailing roots in our family, but they signed me up uh, nevertheless. And it was one of those camps where on the, on the first day with essentially no preparation at all, the camp instructors threw us, threw us each in our own private uh, sunfish sailboat and put us out into the middle of this lake. They were, they were very much of the experience as the best kind of a teacher. Uh, and so they untied us from the dock and they said, hey, you see that small island out there in the distance? We'll meet you there in an hour. Good luck. Here's a life jacket. We hope that you make it. So I'm out there in the middle of this lake, and I really, I have no clue what to do. Their, their orientation was very sparse, very minimal, uh, but I do know enough to raise my sail, because I've seen movies, I know that sailboats should have their sails raised. So I raise it up, 
but I have no idea how to uh, position the sail. Uh, For whatever reason, the island was kind of due north and the wind was straight at our back. And so I thought to align the sail perfectly parallel to the direction of the wind, which is a great strategy if you don't want to move at all, because there's nothing for the sail to, to catch. And so I'm, I'm floundering in the lake, the sail is flapping, when finally someone sees me in my distress and they yell out, uh, let out your sail, right? Let it out, put it perpendicular to the breeze so that you'll actually have some movement. And I said, that, that makes sense. And so I let out, my, let out my sail, and as it began to fill up with the breeze, I began to move towards the island towards my destination. Now, the reason I bring that up with you this morning is because I actually think it's a really good picture of what we are aiming for in this series as a church. If you were able to be here last Sunday, we kicked off a new series that we're calling Draw Near. And the question that we're trying to ask over these seven weeks is how do we draw near to the God that is already drawn close to us in Jesus? In each week of the series, we're looking at a practice from one psalm in the Old Testament, because for millennia, the psalms have been the place where the people of God, God have gone to to learn what it looks like in everyday life to draw near to God. In the way that these practices work, when you're asking, okay, what are we really doing? We are really positioning our soul in such a way to where when the spirit of God blows through our life like he is always doing, the, the sail of our soul catches his movement. Right? By, by raising the sail, by engaging in these practices, we aren't controlling the wind any more than raising a sail on a sailboat controls the wind. But we are posturing ourselves in such a way that when he does blow, there's progress. We grow more quickly almost into the image of Jesus that he has um, for all of us to grow into. So that's what we're doing. We're we're posturing ourselves. And the practice that postures us rightly this week that we're looking at is the practice of creating space for God. We're looking at Psalm 62. And that's the question that we are asking. How do we create space in a very chaotic world to draw near to him? And I would argue that this is probably the most foundational of all the other practices. Uh, Henry Nouwen, who is a a great writer, he said that creating space for the Lord, or in his language, solitude, is the most important practice of all. Listen to what he said from one of his books. He says, without solitude, it is, in virtually, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside space to be with God and to listen to him. So how do we do that, especially in our modern world? Right? We live in the busiest noisiest, most fast-paced, hectic culture in human history. So how do we create that space in that kind of a context? Well, this psalm is going to help us along the way. It's going to teach us three things in particular I want us to uh, process through. Uh, First, we're going to see the need for creating space for God, the practice of creating that space, and then finally, the tension 
that that practice creates. Right? The need for it, the practice of it, and the tension of creating space for God. So if you have a Bible or a phone, I encourage you, go to Psalm 62. And the first thing we're going to see is the need for this practice. Uh, King David is the, the author of this psalm. And while we don't know the exact circumstance that he was facing whenever he uh, penned it, we do know that he is facing a chaotic situation in his life. And it's coming at him from both the outside in and the inside out. Externally, he's being opposed by his enemies. Look at verse three and four. He writes, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. Right, the word for attack that David use here, uses here, it's literally the word for murder. So his very flesh, his life is in danger. But this group is not just trying to take him out physically. They're also trying to tear him down emotionally. They're assaulting his reputation. Right, they're lying about him. They're slandering him. And you get a, a sense from almost the agitation of his words in these verses that it is beginning to get to him. Like maybe what started off as kind of some annoying noise in his life is beginning to seep deeper into his heart and, and play with his sense of worth to shake his very identity at the core, right? He's getting it from the outside, but he's also getting it from the, the inside. And he says, in light of this chaos, I'm like a fence that's leaning over, right? It's barely hanging on, and life continues to ram into me time and time and time again. That is where David is when he writes this psalm. And I wonder if you have ever been there, right? If you've ever been in a, a season where you feel so weak, so fragile, and you think, man, if there's just one more straw laid onto the burden of my life, I think I might collapse like a house of cards. This is where David finds himself. But look, church, how he deals with this chaos, right? The chaos of verse three and four in the psalm, it's, it's framed, it's bracketed by verses one and five. And in both of these verses, he says essentially the same thing. He says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence, the, the literal Hebrew says, before God only, my whole being, silence. Silence. When the chaos comes, David runs to the quiet place with his Lord. And I think it's important for us to, to see this because it, it runs against our impulse. Sometimes when we start to talk about silence and solitude or creating space to be with the Lord, we can have this temptation to say, you know what, Reese, that, that sounds great for the monks, right, out in their mountain monasteries who have nothing to do except to go on an eight-hour prayer walk every single day. But uh, I live in the real world. My life is full of activity. So this is just unrealistic for me. But, but David here, he says, no, it's the opposite. 
right? David does not go to the place of quiet out of a stress-free, nice life. No, he steps out of chaos into the quiet place with God. He steps into the silence with God, not out of calm, but out of crisis. And in that space, look what he finds. Again, verse one, David, he waits with God. And then right after he waits, verse two, he says, he alone is my rock and my salvation. Once again, in verse five, he pulls away again to be with the Lord. And right after he comes out of that place and he says, he alone is my rock and my salvation. There's a pattern there, right? Chaos drives him into the quiet and he comes out of the quiet stabilized, right? He goes in shaking like a tottering fence and he comes back out with a a rock under his feet. Or to put it in, in his language, In the silence, David finds salvation. He uses that word four times in this one chapter, salvation. Now, when you and I hear the word salvation, we can tend to to jump to how God forgives us of our sins, and that's certainly a part of this word, but in the Old Testament especially, salvation is a much broader uh, term, and it really is talking about any time God brings deliverance uh, to his people from some kind of destructive force in our life. It's a very broad uh, use of language. And when David uses it here, he's likely not talking about, um, God, you've brought me salvation, you've forgiven me of my Sins. No, he's talking about how God has brought him a sense of comfort and stability from his enemies. Right? He's talking about deliverance from the fear of those that are opposing him. He's talking about deliverance from worrying about what's happening to his reputation in the community. He's talking about deliverance from the exhaustion that he must have felt always looking over his soul, shoulder for the, the slightest threat. David has found freedom in the silence before God. And it's where our freedom lies as well. It's where our salvation is too. And if you want want to know why that is, we'll just take it out of the spiritual realm for a second. Anytime you want to experience the, the blessings of someone that you value in your life, be it a spouse or a close friend, what do you do? You, you plan a date. Right? You say, hey, let's hop on the phone at 3 p.m. every single Wednesday. Why is that? Because we know that anytime we want to experience more fully another person, we have to protect space in an otherwise crowded life to tap into who they are. And that's what David does here. At the end of this psalm, verse 11, he says, once have you spoken, God, but twice have I heard you. The power belongs to you. And to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. See what's happening there? He says, God is always speaking. Once you've spoken, God, but in the quiet, I've pulled, I've heard twice. I've heard two times. In other words, your power, your, your love that I believe, those weren't new things to David. He's saying, I'm experienced them more fully now. Right? They're not just facts in my head. They're becoming realities that I'm able to tap into in this bubble of time with you. And again, that's what David invites us into. That's where our salvation is. Now, I do, I do realize I'm, I'm not naive about how hard this is to do today, right? Anyone else struggle to find silence in the chaos? I do. 
I mean, to say the thing that we need most in life is to slow down, right? to, to pull away from our activity, it is heresy to our time. Because we've been trained by our culture that anytime something hard comes into your life, you do two things. You either lean into more activity or more noise. Right? Those are the two great prescriptions of our world, activity and noise. Because right? we believe, we have a great amount of faith, that if we can just get the right combination of things in our life, then we should be able to get rid of the turbulence. Right? If we can just get the right amount of um, the right kind of diet, the right kind of uh, exercise routine, the right amount of cold plunges, the right amount of New York Times bestselling list, the right amount of supplements, if we can just dial in all these different things into our life, then the chaos should go away. But what lies underneath that is a belief. There's, not, there's good in a lot of those things. It's not all bad, but what lies beneath our obsession with the latest self-help fad. It is uh, unamountable, um, (laughs) how do I say that? A great amount of confidence in our own powers of salvation. We think that through our activity, we can deliver ourselves, And that's the world that we live in. Add on top of that, the noise of our time that never ends, and it is a recipe for spiritual disaster. See, I'm, uh, I'm not that old, but I'm old enough to remember a time in this uh, culture when there was this thing that existed uh, called boredom, <laughs> right? You'd be standing in line at a coffee shop or at the grocery store, you'd have a couple minutes to kill, and you couldn't pick up this little phone and, and spend it 30, you know, that 30 seconds on Instagram, Instagram or uh, surfing through Twitter or X now, as it's called. No, you had to just sit there with your thoughts. And what's happened is that all these little uh, opportunities to connect with the Lord have been turned into these portals of anxiety and fear and stress. All right, there was a recent survey that uh, Microsoft did a number of years ago. And they found that 77% of young adults answered yes to the question, when nothing is occupying my attention, the first thing I do is reach for my phone. Right? Another study showed that the average adult, this is the middle of the bell curve, not the outliers, the average adult touches their phone 2,617 times a day. Right? And these little moments... They used to be an invitation to connect with God, have been an invitation into something quite different. I mean, how often do you put down your phone after a really great um, Instagram session for 60 minutes or after scrolling through the news on Twitter and just say, man, I feel so much better about my life. Right, the, the tension that I, I had going into this, it's just relieved. Thank you, Lord, for Elon Musk, you know? <laughs> No, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. In his article for uh, New York Magazine called I Used to Be a Human Being, Andrew Sullivan wrote this about our time. He said, we didn't go from faith to secularism in one fell swoop. Rather, modernity slowly weakened spirituality in favor of commerce. It downplayed silence and mere being in favor of noise and constant action. The reason we live in a culture increasingly without faith is not because science has somehow disproved the unprovable, 
but because the white noise of secularism has removed the very stillness in which it might endure and be reborn. I think he's absolutely right. See, church, what if the, what if the freedom from the anxiety that takes away so much of our joy in life is not found from finishing everything on your to-do list so that you feel like you have your life under control for one second, but rather from sitting at the feet of our Savior. Right, what if relief from the, the anger that rears its head in our life is, is found in the presence of the Prince of Peace rather than the exhausting effort to try to control every dimension of our day, which inevitably will turn into chaos one way or another? See, all of us, all of us have something that we need salvation from. All of us need deliverance from something in our lives. Something has its claws in us. And David says that deliverance is found not in noise, not in activity. It's found in the silence. That's what we see play out here in this psalm. So the question is, how do we do that? Right? What does that practically look like in the midst of a very busy life? Well, even though David uh, did live in a very different time, right? He didn't have to worry about iPhones or the internet. But we still see here that creating space for God requires three different things. It requires intentionality, vulnerability, and patience. They're all three in here. Intentionality, vulnerability, and patience. So first, intentionality. I don't know if you noticed, but in in verse 1, David says... For God alone, my soul waits in silence. He states a fact, right? It's in the indicative for the English teachers in the room. I saw one just in the back earlier. But in verse five, it changes into an imperative. David says, for God alone, oh my soul, wait in silence, wait. It's a command. And I think the reason why is because even back then, he knew it is not natural for our souls to slow down. Right? They almost have to be wrestled into submission, right? pinned to the ground, which means that creating space for God does not happen in our life by accident. It is something that we have to protect. It requires intentionality. And you, and you see this in the life of Jesus. Uh, there, there's a fascinating place in Luke 5. It says this about him. It says, great crowds gathered to hear him and he healed and to be healed of their infirmities. Yet he often, right? Not this one time. He often withdrew to desolate places and prayed. And what's fascinating about this verse is it doesn't say that Jesus finished healing the long line of needs and then he withdrew for a little bit of rest. No, it says there was a crowd with needs and yet he withdrew to pray. The implication being there were people that Jesus likely did not heal. And yet he knew he had to go be in the quiet place with his father. And that took intentionality. And so for us, if you are in a busy season of life, like I am, I would imagine most of us here are, if this is going to be a part of our life, I don't know how it gets installed into our week unless we protect distraction-free, a time and a place to be with God. 
It doesn't happen by accident. We don't tend to drift into this. But if Jesus found a way to do it with all that was on his plate, we can too. I know for me, I got to put it in my calendar. Right? I got to protect a block of time so that it doesn't get pushed out. Even then, it still does at times, but at least it's in there. Now, a couple, um, I think, really important personal encouragements uh, on this. If you're going to protect that time, protect that space, number one, I would say you have to know the season of life that you're in. Right? If you're, let's say you're an empty nester, maybe you don't have young kids in the house, you might be able to protect a, an hour um, to go on a walk with Jesus every day after uh, lunch or to pray, whatever that looks like. But if you're a, a student um, in grad school or especially if you are a parent of young kids, don't block an hour in your calendar. Because you're going to be disappointed and you're going to feel discouraged. For you, this might look literally like protecting the first five minutes of nap time to just sit down and remember that the, that the God of the universe is with you in the beautiful, hard chaos of parenting. Right? That's what it might look like for you. Right? So know the season that you're in. Don't reach too far. God can meet you in that five minutes. He really can. And he can meet you in that time just like he can in an hour that you set aside. So know the season. But then second of all, leverage your community. Again, this is a big one, especially if you have young kids in the house. I know that um, when we were in that season, kind of swimming in diapers, me and Meredith, if one of us needed some time to be with the Lord, it meant that the other had to step up and you know be the solo parent for a couple of hours. But what greater gift... Can we give to each other? Can we give to our spouses than to say, hey, I'll hold down the fort. I'll take care of this chore. You go and be with Jesus. All right, so know your season and leverage your community as you seek to intentionally protect this space to be with the Lord. That's the first thing. So it requires intentionality. But then second, we see here in verse 8 that it requires vulnerability. There's a great verse, verse eight, trust in him at all times, O people, pour out your hearts before him. What a, a beautiful invitation that is, pour out your heart before the Lord. Now to the Hebrews, when they talk about the heart in the Old Testament, they're not only talking about your emotions, they're talking really about the center of your being. So David is saying, bring your your whole self into God's presence, not just the parts you're proud of, but the good and the bad. And I know for me, I think one of the things that can make this really challenging, challenging to do is that if it has been a while since you have created space for God, there becomes almost this emotional backlog that you have to account for. And the thought of coming into his presence and taking the top off of your heart is, is scary because you don't know what's going to come out, right? It can be rather terrifying. See, David says you can uh, pour out your heart before God. Think of like one of those old Coke bottles. You know, you, you pour it out, it kind of comes out at a decent pace. There's some bubbles and fizz, but it's under control. But if you don't pour your heart out, the alternative is you have to bottle up your heart. And just like one of those cans, you shake it up and you shake it up, and eventually it will explode and hurt the people that are around us. See, church, we, we believe that we can bottle it up and put it in some dark corner, and it will not deal or you know, mess with the rest of our life, but we really only have 
two options when we have a wounded heart. We can pour it out before God and let him heal it, or we can pass that wound on to somebody else we care about. Those are the only two options. You can pour it out, or you can bottle it up and pass it on to someone else. Someone we know recently, me and Meredith, uh, she went on a, a silent retreat and she shared how one day the, the person that was facilitating the time uh, sent them off to, uh, uh, into the woods or, or somewhere like that for a couple of hours just to be with the Lord and encouraged her to, to, to enter into that time saying this to God, I, I think a beautiful prayer. They said, say this, it is good for me to be here with you, right? It is good for me to be here with you, Lord. Not the Instagram version of me with filters, right? Not the the Sunday morning me dressed up in my Sunday best, even though the night before maybe I've been weeping in the pillow. It is good for me with all of my mess to be here with you. That's the invitation that we have from the Lord here to pour our hearts out before him because God can handle the real you, right? He knows what you're thinking already. You're not trying to hide it from him. You're not protecting it from him. Come to him as you are. So this space, it takes intentionality. It doesn't happen naturally. It requires vulnerability. But then lastly, we see here that it also demands patience, Right, patience. And you can see this in the, the structure of this psalm. As you probably know, uh, the psalms are poetry. And the way that poetry works is that the message comes through not just the literal meanings of each word, but it comes through in how the author is using the words, the, the structure of the psalms. And there is a structure to this psalm that lets us know this is not a one-time thing. It is a lifelong Thing. We already kind of pointed it out, right? There's this rhythm of silence, chaos, silence. And Derek Kidner, who's a commentator on the Psalms, he makes the point that in the structure of Psalm 62, David is communicating a message that to find deliverance from the chaos, there has to be the ping pong of chaos and silence, chaos and silence. It requires patience. It requires perseverance. It's not a one-time thing. And the reason why is because, like it or not, if you spend any time in the scriptures, one of the inevitable themes that will come out is that God is a very slow God, right? He's slow, right? He's the tortoise in the parable of the, you know, the hare and the tortoise. Now, he can work quickly, of course. Uh, That's up to him. But more often than not, he works at a different pace than we do. Right? Abraham and Sarah, 100 years waiting for their promised son. Right? The people of Israel, um, 400 years in Egypt before they find deliverance. And then even then, 40 more years of wandering in the wilderness before uh, they enter into the promised land. God tends to work on a very different timetable than we are used to. And so don't be surprised. Don't be discouraged if after a few times of pulling away and meeting with Jesus, your whole life isn't changed. No, it requires patience. It requires a, a, a commitment to resist the, the Amazon prime culture that we live in and embrace the slower but ultimately much better way of Jesus who is never in a rush, right? Never late, 
never too early, right, right on time. Just like a wizard. I didn't say that first service. That was bonus. That was, that was my first Lord of the Rings reference. I have an infinite amount. I've really been resisting. Uh, but it came out. I can't help it. So to pull, to pull some of these threads together, when we talk about creating space for God, here's what we mean. It is the practice of consistently bringing our whole selves into a distraction-free space with our Savior. That's what it is. It's, it's the practice. It's a commitment to bring our whole selves consistently into a distraction-free space with our Savior. And over the next few weeks, we're, we're going to be talking more about in that space, how do we kind of fill it in? How do we color it in? How do we um, open our ears to listen to God's voice? How do we reflect on what we hear in his word? How do we respond to it through prayer? So we're going to be talking more about that, but this is where it starts. And so my encouragement, invitation to us as a church this week is that we would find some space to put the distractions away, put away the phones, and just be with Jesus. Right? It could be, again, 10 minutes after the kids go down to bed. Maybe that's where you start. God can work in that 10 minutes. Maybe you read this psalm and you just reflect on it in the quiet and let it bring out in prayer whatever you want to say back to God. Maybe instead of um, putting the AirPods in at the gym this week, when you're exercising, you leave them in the car and you just work out and you talk to God while you do it, or you just are quiet and you hear what he might have what, uh, for your heart. It's going to look different, and it should look different for each and every one of us. But this week, let's carve out some time to bring our whole selves before God, because he's waiting for us there. He wants, he wants to meet with us. Now, before we can um, wrap up in worship, there I do think there is a final tension in this psalm that we have to uh, talk about. And it comes in the very last line of the psalm. I don't know if anyone else felt it. <clears throat> I know everyone is eager here to pull out your phone and create a reoccurring event that says space for God every single day this week. But before you can do that, you got to deal with this tension. In verse 12, David says, run to the Lord, pour out your heart, the good and the bad, just put it all out on the table. And then he ends the psalm saying, for you, O God, will render to a man according to his work. Does that create tension for anybody? He ends the psalm saying, God, you will give exactly to each person what they deserve. You are a perfect God of justice. He just said, though, be vulnerable with him. Pour out your heart. And when I do that, church, there are going to be plenty of things that come out daily that are not pretty, that are twisted, that are dark, that are even evil. Along with the good, there is a lot of bad. And if God were to look at that and render to me the things that I deserved, I would be condemned. I'd be turned away. David says, God is a God of hesed, of steadfast love. So come with the good and the bad, but he's also a God of righteousness. He's a perfect judge who will let no evil deed go unpunished. It's a tension, and it's a tension that runs through the scriptures from Genesis right into the, the New Testament. 
Right, this phrase, God will render to everyone what they deserve, it pops up time and time again. Jesus says it in Matthew 16. Paul says it in Romans. And so what do you do with that? How can we say it's good to be all of me in your presence, a perfectly just and righteous God? Well, I think we get a part of the answer, a key puzzle piece of the answer, at least in Matthew 26. In Matthew 26, Jesus finds himself in a very similar place to where David is in this psalm. His enemies are coming for him, and he knows it. They're slandering him. They've they've spoken lies about him, and now they are coming for his very life. And so what does he do? He does what David does. Jesus pulls away into the silence. But he goes to a little garden outside of Jerusalem. And before the Lord, he prays, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Now the cup he's talking about, it's it's a metaphor from the Old Testament that stood for God's judgment against human works of evil. Or like David says, God has examined humanity and he has rendered a verdict and that verdict is guilty and the consequences of that verdict he has poured into this cup for somebody to drink. And throughout the Old Testament, you see at times that the cup overflows and God pours it out on a nation or even his own people. But this cup is the ultimate cup. It is full to the brim and someone must pay the price. That's what Jesus came to do, he says. But now the hour has come. Hours before his death and he's looking at the cup. He's beholding the cup and he's terrified of what drinking it will mean so much so that he says, uh, quote, my soul is sorrowful even to death. The weight of this is so overwhelming. So Lord, if there is any other way, deliver me from the cup. See what he's doing? He's run to the silence and he's asking his father for salvation. He's asking his God to be delivered from the cup. But of course, we know how the story goes. The father looks back and he says with great affection in his heart for his son, my son, there is no other way to relieve the tension between our love for them and our justice towards them. You must drink the cup. And then Jesus, in the greatest act of love and courage in the history of the universe, said, Father, not my will, but your will. I will gladly drink of it. I will willingly go to the cross. And in his death, Jesus, not under compulsion, but willingly pours out the cup to the last drop into his soul. Why? So that you and me, church, can pour out our hearts before God and know that we will be embraced no matter how bad of a week we are having. Every drop of God's anger, his just anger towards evil, Jesus takes into himself so that we can bring ourselves, our whole selves before him and find healing that we need. And the more you realize that, church, the more we see what Jesus has done for us, it makes us not just um, consider drawing near, it makes us eager to run into his presence as we are. 
I know for me, for the longest time, even though I knew theologically that my sins were forgiven, um, anytime I would come into the presence of God, I kind of tiptoed into his presence. Right? I kind of came with my, my head hung low, or maybe I came with a, a, a performance record I had assembled from the week before that I felt I kind of had to present to him before I really began to pour out my heart and feel the freedom to ask him for what I need. I, I came in hesitantly, not with boldness. But then one day, a, um, a person said to me, he said, Reese, don't you realize what you're doing? You're trying to drink the cup, but the cup is empty. You're trying to atone for your sins. Right, you're trying to uh, drink just a, I, you know, Jesus has done some of it, but I got to drink a little bit of it before I can really be me, before I can really come into his presence with thanksgiving and boldness and courage. You're trying to drink the cup, but there is nothing left in it. And now all that there is is invitation. Or as the old hymn said, death and the curse were in that cup. O Christ, was full for thee, but thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love drank it up, now cloudless peace for me. The cup is empty, and now God says, it is good for you to be here with me. And that's the invitation. May we be a people that draw near to God because we believe that salvation is found in the silence with him, church. Let's, let's pray to that end now. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for giving the most precious gift you could have given us in him to come and drink the cup that we deserve to drink so that we could pour our hearts out to you and know that we'd be welcomed as a son and a daughter of the king. Jesus, we thank you for your, your courage, Lord, your deep love for us, your willingness to lay your life down so that we might come to the feast of your love for us. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for how you're always at work in our life are the winds of your grace. We might not know where they're coming, um, but they are coming. They are here. They're blowing. And help us, God. Give us the strength that we need to posture ourselves and position our souls to work with the uh, grace that you are pouring into our life. God, it is from beginning to end your work, your grace, and yet you have chosen to allow us uh, to work with you to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So teach us to do that, God, we pray. We love you. It's in Christ's name that we say all these things. Amen.